Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your Midweek Bible Study 2024 edition. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It is great to be with you once again. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. Today is Wednesday, February 7th. We're continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to pick up with Hebrews chapter 5, starting with verse 11, and we're going to go all the way over to chapter 6, verse 20. And we're going to talk about a call to spiritual growth. This is going to be a great study today and a really challenging one. You'll see why in just a moment. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Almighty and most merciful Heavenly Father, we come to you today excited about sitting at your feet and learning again. Lord, teach us from your word today. I'm so excited that we get to talk about some real meat on the bone stuff today. This is not just milk. This is absolute great teaching from you. And we are excited about growing in our walk and our knowledge of you through this study. Lord, teach us about a call to spiritual growth in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, let's get to it. Open up your Bible or Bible apps to Hebrews chapter 5, starting with verse 11, and let's begin. There's much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Our first question today is this. Here the writer expresses frustration with the original audience. What's that all about, do you think? Regarding Christ's role as high priest, there's much more that the writer would like to say. He even says so right then. The writer's frustration, though, was that instead of working hard in their faith, these Christians were choosing the easier road. In fact, the writer illustrates this by saying of them, you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Now, the word translated dull comes from the Greek term nothros, which carries a sense of being lazy or sluggish. The criticism here is not that these Christians are unintelligent or incapable of understanding. Rather, they had become sluggish and or apathetic about their spiritual growth. And that kind of echoes the warning given back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 that we studied just recently, where the writer commanded his audience to pay closer attention to these kinds of things. Next is verse 12, and it reads, You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. The question is, the writer continues to share his frustration with these believers using an analogy of child development. What's he saying here? Apparently, these people had been Christians for a long time, so long, in fact, that they ought to be teaching others. That's what the writer said in the verse. Kind of reminds you a little bit of the Corinthian church, doesn't it? But then they'd been lazy in their faith, and they needed someone to teach them again the basic things about God's word. No wonder they're in danger of drifting, as chapter 2, verse 1 said. Rather than explore and deepen their knowledge of Christ, rather than trying to please God with their actions, they considered abandoning Christ when they faced opposition. Now look at that phrase, basic things. The phrase basic things refer to the simple message of the gospel and the basic beliefs of the faith. Instead of teaching them to others, these believers needed to be taught all over again. They're like babies still drinking milk instead of growing up into eating solid food. The more difficult teachings of God's word, especially as the significance of Christ's position as high priest, which the writer had just begun to discuss, he'll continue to do in chapter 7. So they need to move on. They need to grow. And isn't that the truth? We all need to dig deeper and get to that solid food in the word. Verse 13 is next. It says, 
for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what's right. The question is, continuing his thought from the previous verse, what does the writer say about these believers regarding their maturity in their faith? These immature Christians, they're living on milk. That is, they've not grown in their faith. They remained inexperienced and unskilled in applying their knowledge to their lives and doing what's right. They had received enough instruction. They're just acting like infants. Next up, verse 14, it says, Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now this verse contrasts spiritual babies with the spiritually mature. How does the writer balance this? What is he saying here? These mature believers are called as such because they've trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong. That's what the verse says. Spiritually mature Christians constantly are examining themselves, turning away from sin, and learning what actions, thoughts, and attitudes will please the Lord. Amen. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 5. Let's cross over into chapter 6, Hebrews 6. We're going to start with verses 1, 2, and 3 together. Let's read. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. The question is, these verses are the writer's answer to the problem that he just posed at the end of chapter 5 that we just talked about. What is he saying here in chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3? What's his answer to the problem that he just talked about in chapter 5? Well, clearly the writer would not give in to the Jewish Christians' immaturity and provide them with only milk because rehashing the basic doctrines, it's not going to help them resist the temptation to drift away from Christ. They needed to gain a deeper understanding, moving beyond the basic teachings about Christ. Of course, believers don't leave these teachings as if they didn't need them anymore. The elementary teachings are essential, foundational, if you will, for all believers to understand. The elementary teachings about Christ include the importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. That's what the writer says. Other basic instruction include baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These Christians needed to move beyond these basics of their faith to an understanding of Christ as the perfect high priest and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Rather than arguing about the respective merits of Judaism and Christianity, they needed to seek deeper understanding of God by studying the more difficult concepts of his word. That's true for us today as well, beloved. Next, let's look at verses 4, 5, and 6. For it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. These verses, as the question says, are arguably some of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. What do you think the writer's point is in these verses? I think it would be really helpful for us first to consider the subject of these verses. The writer describes certain people with four phrases. Take a look. He calls them once enlightened. Do you see that? Number two, he calls them experienced 
the good things of heaven. They've experienced the good things of heaven. He also says, number three, they shared in the Holy Spirit. And number four, they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. The writer is saying it is impossible for such people if they fall away to be restored to repentance. Now, there are four main interpretations of this passage. I want to share them with you because not everyone agrees. Theologians and Bible scholars don't all agree as to what the main point is here. So let me give you four of the main interpretations I've come across in my study. The first interpretation states that this passage means Christians can lose their salvation. But this is dismissed by other portions of Scripture. John 10, verses 27 and 28, for instance. It says, My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus said. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. And then in Romans 8, 38 and 39, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second interpretation is that some interpret this passage as hypothetical. In other words, if it were possible. But if this passage were only hypothetical, then the warning wouldn't be necessary, would it? A third interpretation is that the writer may have intended to illustrate someone who seemed to be a Christian but never really was a true follower of Christ. All the descriptive phrases could describe someone who's not really in the faith. This interpretation is acceptable when considering the greater context. Now, Hebrews chapter 3, when we studied that a few weeks ago, verses 16 to 19, reveals how each Jew living in the wilderness had seen God's great power. They'd eaten the manna. They'd accompanied God and had looked like one of God's people, yet they never entered the promised land. The writer didn't want the Christians to fall into the same category and experience the same fate. And the fourth reasonable interpretation arises by linking this portion of scripture with chapter 10, verses 25 to 31, which is another severe warning that we're going to get to in a few weeks. The writer of Hebrews was warning against a specific kind of apostasy. Now that word apostasy means an abandonment or betrayal of your belief or your faith. So in other words, the writer here in Hebrews, he's warning against this specific kind of apostasy, forsaking Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for sins and returning to animal sacrifices, which is a means of atoning for sins back in the Old Testament. That's the return to Judaism. So the severe warning is for those Jewish Christians who had originally accepted Christ's redemption through his blood and then reverted to offering up the blood of bulls and goats as a means of cleansing their sins. In the first century, a pagan, meaning a non-Christian, someone who doesn't believe, who investigated Christianity and then went back to paganism, would make a clean break from the church. But for Jewish Christians who decided to return to Judaism, the break was less obvious. Their lifestyle remained relatively unchanged. But by deliberately turning away from Christ, they were cutting themselves off from God's forgiveness. It is impossible for people who've professed to be Christians and have experienced all the beautiful gifts described in these verses to be restored when they turn away from Christ. Why? Because they're nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame, the writer says. These people have shown contempt for Christ through their deliberate actions. It would be like personally crucifying Christ again. Many have argued whether someone who turns away from Christ can be restored to Christ. 
some point to this passage to prove that a backslider can't be restored. But beloved, backsliders are not the subject here. This passage refers to people who walk with Christ for a while and then deliberately turn around and walk the other direction, rejecting Christ. These people can never be restored. Why? Because they don't want to be restored. They've chosen to harden their hearts against Christ. Could God forgive them? Yes, it's possible. But because they won't repent of their sins, they won't be. To the Hebrew Christians, these verses revealed the danger of returning to Judaism, which would amount to apostasy, this rejection, this abandonment, if you will. Those who reject Christ will not be saved. Christ died once for all who believe. He will not be crucified again. Next up, let's look at verses 7 and 8 together. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. In these verses, a farming illustration helps to describe the argument in verses 4 through 6 that we just talked about. What's the writer saying here in verses 7 and 8 about that? Well, I believe he's saying that someone who abandons Christ can be compared with a field that bears thorns and thistles. Such land refuses to yield a good crop no matter what attention it gets. In other words, it's useless. So with those who don't persevere to the end, their punishment is real and it's guaranteed. It said, as the writer said, the farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. I would also encourage you to check out Matthew 3.10 and John 15 verses 1 to 4. But believers who stay close to God, seeking to grow closer to him, can be described as those who bear a good crop and receive God's blessings. Just as both fields receive rain, so both groups receive God's concern and care, but only one group is genuine. Next is verse 9. It says, Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. The question is, here the writer switches to an encouraging note to these believers. What does he say? What does it mean in this verse 9? After arguing that it's possible for a non-Christian to seem like a true Christian, the writer says we really don't believe it applies to you. In other words, he reassures these readers that, thankfully, the dire warning of tragedy and spiritual loss, it's not going to happen against these Hebrew believers. Confidence of the farmer and of a positive survey of the soil overcome the writer's earliest worry about the appearance of weeds, in this case, the Christians who felt like retreating into prior religious ritual or back to Judaism. But these Christians have got to show spiritual growth. They can't be lazy. They've got to move on. The phrase, you're meant for better things, things that will come with salvation, it refers to the new covenant as compared with the old. The better things are in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. There would be no reason to return to the old things of Judaism that could not bring salvation. Look at verse 10. It says, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him and how you've shown your love for him by caring for other believers, as you still do. The question is, in this verse, the writer continues his thoughts from the previous verse. What is he emphasizing here in verse 10? He's saying that while believers don't need to work for salvation, salvation ought to change their lives so that they naturally want to serve God. In other words, do good works and advance his kingdom. Although a believer may not presently be receiving rewards and recognition, God knows the efforts of love and ministry. He will not forget a believer's hard work for him. One example of this hard work was that believers cared for each other. They, in other words, the writer says they cared for other believers. As it's said in other passages throughout the New Testament, what believers do for others is done for God. 
Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me, Jesus said. Matthew 25, 35, Romans 12, 6 through 18, 1 John 4, 19 to 21. Good works don't guarantee salvation, beloved, but salvation changes the lives of God's people, leading them to perform good works. Let's look at verse 11. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. The question is, in this verse, we see yet another example where believers are encouraged to seek a full, mature, purposeful faith in Christ. Can you elaborate on what the writer says here in verse 11? The writer says that the service of loving others should be continued as long as life lasts. It pleases God when his people serve him. Believers have work to do in the world and should continue showing that diligence to grow and serve. Why? The verse says, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. In other words, we serve not in order to get to heaven, but because we are assured of the full realization of what we hope for and because we love the one who gave us that assurance. Our conviction must produce actions that show our true colors. We don't serve merely for the fun of it or for humanitarian principles. We serve because our hope is in our future life with Christ. And now, my friends, our last verse for today, chapter 6, verse 12. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Here's the question. What encouragement does the writer give his readers as he closes out this section about spiritual growth? I believe he's saying that believers are to be diligently growing and serving, not sitting back making everyone else do the work. To keep from becoming inactive or indifferent, believers would do well to, as the writer said, follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. So the writer anticipates the example of many Old Testament followers of God, which we're going to discuss later in chapter 11 in a few weeks. Now, their example should be actively imitated. I'd encourage you to go ahead and read ahead so you see what I mean. And not merely learned and acknowledged, these examples should be actively imitated. Imitating these people's examples of faith in God, it will help Christians of all time keep from drifting away from Christ or becoming hard-hearted. Y'all, I don't know about you, but this was a challenging study today. The writer of Hebrews, he talked about some amazing principles of faith and spiritual growth, and actually they still apply to us today. Beloved, if you're not growing in your walk with Christ, then I encourage you to start today. I know what this is like because I've been there. I've had dry spells too in my walk with Christ. Get up and let's get back to it. This walk with Jesus is not easy, but one thing I've learned is that it doesn't take a high IQ to do this. It takes a high I will. Now make sure you understand the fundamentals of your faith, my friends. Then move on as the Lord leads you to the deeper principles as we've discussed in this study. We should all strive for 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Amen and amen. All right, next time we're going to study Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And then we're going to talk about God's promises bringing hope. And we're also going to cross over into chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, and talk about how Melchizedek compared to Abraham. It has been a joy to be with you once again today. Thank you for taking time. I truly appreciate you and your families. Have an amazing rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. 
Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.